I think what you're frightened of with death is like people, missing people, like missing out on people and on life and on uh, experiences and on the way that society is that, you know, um, and and actually when, when I'm a kid in, in the start of the book and, and I'm praying to God, to what I'm praying for is that I will see people again. Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts, Charles Perry Phillips and Sophie Green where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs. With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature. So let's get into today's episode. Probably a good place to start actually on the the God Desire. I mean, it's you know, it's a light-hearted topic, religion. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what made you want to write it I guess well um luckily my previous book Jews Don't Count had been a success and therefore I suddenly found myself in the privileged position of being able to write essay books that people will buy and that's privileged partly because I don't, they don't have to be that long <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. writing a book having written quite long books, novels and whatnot in my life. And before I wrote kids novels, I wrote four adult novels. That takes a long time. Uh, and But one thing I really like about the essay book format, um, and I was asked to write The Jews Don't Count, not that specific subject, but to write an essay book by the Times Literary Supplement. And I said, I'll write about that. What I like about that form is that I'm able to drill down in a very into a very specific part of what might be quite a big subject. So with anti-Semitism, it was specifically about what I saw as the progressive failure to sort of really include anti-Semitism in the way that they think about identity uh, and Jewish inclusion and Jewish representation and whatever. Uh, and in this one, it's not meant to be a book that covers the waterfront of religion, which obviously is a you know Encyclopedia Britannica book. Uh, it, it's meant to be specifically about my feeling that um, if you asked me why I don't believe in God, it wouldn't be about the problem of evil in the world or the fact that I don't think anything existed before the Big Bang or all the sort of mm. standard conversations that maybe that people have about God, but it would be because I, I want to believe in God. Um, and I um, remember once Omid Jalili, I quote this in the book, although it, it's in a play in the book, but it, it came from a moment when Omid Jalili the uh, British Iranian comedian who was in my film, The Infidel, that I wrote, which is again about religion because about a Muslim who discovers he was born a Jew. We were, he's a Baha'i, uh, which is a religion, religion that kind of believes all religions have validity. And we were in the trailer and he said to me, after a long heated debate about God, don't you want to believe in God? And I said, yes, desperately. That's why I know he doesn't exist. And the word, key word is desperately because I think that there's a ferocious need that humans have to believe in something, uh, something greater than themselves, something that will outsmart death, something that will give their lives meaning. Um, and that's why we've created this thing over many centuries, this myth uh, that there is something there that satisfies all that. And that's my principal reason for being an atheist. It's kind of a weird inversion. It's like, I, I love the idea of God. I would love there to be a God. And because I'm suspicious of that love, of wish fulfillment that's why i don't believe in it and that's what the book's about and that's why it's quite short because it's not trying to you know cover the history of atheism as a philosophical idea yeah i suppose you do tend to see people t either turning to good god or turning away from god in times of crisis i'm just curious yeah. growing up what was your kind of your views on religion um i know you're you're uh, an atheist now but was there a moment where a specific moment of crisis or sudden period in your life when you you started to question that i don't think there was a moment of crisis actually it's kind of that's a, a weird element to do with growing up in a jewish household and going to an orthodox jewish school um i went to a, a, really quite an orthodox jewish school um where i had to wear a yarmulke and eat kosher and learn hebrew and say lots of blessings I, that wasn't really what it was like in my house so there was lots of confusion there uh but um the uh thing about judaism i think is that it doesn't have a sort of uh deep deep i mean lots of jews will disagree with this but this is how i feel deep kind of spiritual journey it's much more of an immediate thing where you do certain things you recite certain words you do certain things with your clothes you think about things in a certain way and that gets you through the day 
it doesn't do the thing that maybe Christianity or other religions do or prepare you in a very long way for the hereafter, for heaven, for whatever. It's And I think it's a function of being a persecuted minority. I think Jews over many centuries were so persecuted that a lot of their rituals became a kind of almost OCD thing to sort of make mean I'm, I'm not going to be killed in the next moment, right? And uh, as a result, when I sort of started to disbelieve in God or disbelieve or what I don't know if I ever really completely believed him anyway but I don't think there was that thing like I'm reading a lot of Graham Greene at the moment right the, and Graham Greene's totally fantastic and he's really Catholic and uh, in his books when people have a crisis of faith like Christians sometimes do it's massive it's a massive shifting of the deep roots of their personality I, I am not sure that can quite happen certainly in the kind of Jewish upbringing I had I mean, interestingly enough, uh, this is very interesting in terms of deep questioning. Uh, uh, someone I know called Shalom Auslander, who's written books about um, growing up in very, very closed Orthodox communities and leaving it. He said when he left that community, he did feel um, troubled, but it, it sort of follows from what I say, which is it wasn't a massive kind of spiritual problem. It was that he would walk down the road and think that something bad was going to happen to him. Mm straightforwardly he think oh my child's gonna get run over and or i'm gonna have a heart attack and that is right in terms of the way judaism is immediately protected rather than, than anything else and now i didn't anyway is the answer I did that. <laughs> um i um I, I don't know when i started absolutely calling myself an atheist um that's something that i've come to maybe in later life um that i feel that not i don't feel i'm an agnostic i don't feel i'm a humanist or the other words i feel to some extent although they all have validity they are softening of my intellectual position uh mm. which is much more um fundamentalist about there being no god even though i have much more weird sympathy and respect perhaps for religion than some atheists yeah it's interesting you think you touch on at the beginning of the book about your insomnia and now we've yeah. talked about this before but how that was a big impact for you with regards to this entire um, feelings around God. And can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I opened the book by talking about something, which I now think I should have written the other way around. Cause I've noticed that when I talk about it on stage, cause I'm being interviewed a bit on stage at the moment about the book, I get a big laugh, which I don't get in the book. I miss it in the book by, by this is how comedy works by leaving a reveal till the end. Mm. Right. So you're not going to laugh now because you know the punchline. <laughs> but I begin the book by saying I am an insomniac, right? Now, what I should have done, because I realise that this is how I get to laugh, is when I first heard about death, uh, when I was about, or first understood it when I was like six or seven, and I felt I was deeply troubled by that and worried about not seeing my mum and dad at some point and that, that all my loved ones would disappear. And I was deeply anxious about that. I told my mum about it and she tried to make me feel better about it by saying, don't worry, death is like a long sleep from which you never wake up. And that's how I became a lifelong insomnia. <laughs> that, that's how it gets a laugh, because right? I hold it back. But I don't do that in the book. Um, and uh, But it's true. It is true that I am an insomniac and I don't, I think there are many reasons for that, probably. But I do think one of them is, and the book is quite, um, you know, I, I, I think the book is funny and I think it's hopefully quite a good read, but it is quite heftily infused by anxiety about mortality. Uh, and that is something that I think is related to insomnia, because I think, you know, I find it quite, I find the idea of unconsciousness quite difficult um, and letting go quite difficult. I just do have a, also a brain that I find quite hard to switch off. So I don't know how much it's just that or a genuine fear of like, oh, I don't really want to be. Because the thing about mortality is that I think it can feel very selfish to say, oh, I'm frightened of death or whatever. It's like, do you want to live forever or what is it or whatever? But I actually, in the book, I make it clear that I think it's a much more socialised thing than that. I think what you're frightened of with death is like people, missing people, like missing out on people and on life and on uh experiences and on the way that society is that you know um and and actually when when i'm a kid in in the start of the book and and i'm praying to god to what i'm praying for is that i will see people again mm. I'm, i remember that very clearly when i'm six or seven years old what i'm praying for is that i will see my mother and father my best friend saul rosenberg my cat uh i'm praying for that and i think that's what the actual instinct is 
the, the, the fear of death is more about that than it is about like all me, me, me. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm just thinking from my own perspective um, and just for the listeners as well, I'm, I would say possibly open to anything really. I'm not, I'm not an atheist, but I'm not religious. But um, when my, when my mum died for me, that was the moment that I really sort of needed to know that there was something after death because otherwise a person had just been taken out of my life way too young Uh, you know I didn't have her in my life she wasn't a part of our life anymore but I guess this idea that people are kind of watching on and still experiencing you and you're still experiencing them in some way is very comforting for people it is very comforting um and and it also um you you know I think there's an issue with with feeling that our lives need to be witnessed and that begins with our parents right when we're little we're constantly in need of these people who are kind of uh, the people who are watching our story yeah and without it it sort of feels like what's the point and why who is there for mm. us um and actually i i, I quote this a, a writer called john updike who i'm very obsessed with and who was a believer and he relates god to the idea of, of a parent mm. and to sleep he says he says that when you're asleep particularly when you're a kid or when you're trying to get to sleep you often need to hear the sound of a parent downstairs to know that everything's okay mm. and and he says that's what religion is as well that's like a sense of like in life you have to have a sense that there is something watching you and i, I said and my my feeling is that see he comes to the conclusion that that's why god exists i come to the conclusion that's what we need so we've created god to, to satisfy that need which is a more depressive kind of way of looking at it but i understand the need completely and i understand what you've just said completely about needing i feel it you know, much later in life, you know, I don't think it actually, I mean, it obviously is more uh, difficult and tragic if it happens to you when you're young. And my wife actually lost her dad when she was six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously incredibly rupturing. But I would say that even when like my mum died when she was 75 and uh, and I was, you know, whatever I was then, like completely adult, mm-hmm. even though it's still deeply dis- disorientating is what it is. When, when those people who have been in your life forever just disappear, it's really disorientating and really hard to sort of make sense of it. Mm, yeah oh, I feel like we're having a little therapy session actually <laughs> yeah well it's, <laughs> it's unquestionable I mean oh. yeah exactly <laughs> I mean I would say though as well because religion is a very polarizing subject mm. um, and I'm sure that there'll be people that are deeply religious listening that will possibly They've feel a little bit <laughs> yeah or maybe just feel a little <laughs> angered or triggered in some way but I would say you're you know the God desire is extremely compassionate. And I think it's a very unusual perspective to come at because religion is so polarizing. Most people are either staunchly religious or they're staunchly not. Similar mm. in, in terms of like political beliefs, um, people tend to attach their identity mm. to it. And so yeah. I think it's quite um, impressive, actually, that you are able to kind of step away from that in terms of identity and kind of see both sides of the, the fence. Yeah, thank you. I mean really i like i'm only really interested in truth is what i'm interested in that's my sort of only thing in my life because i don't believe in god um and because i sort of don't have much in the way of what might be called conventional i guess morality i'm interested in being as truthful i i think i I, you know this is probably offensive to some people but i'm going to say anyway i think i have a sort of almost on the spectrum need to tell the truth all Mm. the time Mm. um and one of those uh truth is like what's the truth about my relationship to religion and it's complex it's not simple and when i read other atheists just dismissing religion like they sometimes do uh, I just think, well, that's clearly not how I feel about it. It's not how I feel about it because I was brought up. I mean, most of them are not brought up in any kind of religious minority kind of world. And so they don't experience what I experience and what I still experience, which is that my identity is wrapped up with a culture whose roots are religious. Right. right? Now, I don't believe in God, but I still feel, as is perhaps obvious, very Jewish. And so therefore I know what, how sometimes inseparable, and there's a long bit in the middle of the book where I try and separate it and can't, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of inseparable what your identity is if you're part of a cultural minority from certain religious roots. And so I sort of understand it much more than maybe, say, Richard Dawkins does, that some people feel 
that he's taking away something very, very basic about their life mm. when he's dismissing religion. And also, I just don't believe it at some level. Like, this is a sort of more psychological thing, but when I think I quote Bertrand Russell saying, you know, that he knows he's going to die and he doesn't care, you know, like he basically says, I will rot and my ego will disappear, but I scorn to shiver at those who would... No, sorry, I scorn those who would shiver at the thought of oblivion. And I kind of think it's so macho, this is what I say, that mm. it's so macho, this idea of, like, I'm not frightened and I don't need God and I don't need comfort. Like, why say that? Mm. Why say that? It's childish, I think, at some level, and intellectually incurious. Mm. It, I do, I very much do believe that God doesn't exist, but that doesn't mean that the desire for God, the need for God, and also the stories that surround that are not sort of, t they tell you a lot about what it means to be human. Yeah, is what I think. yeah. Um, and going back to what you were saying about parents, it kind of for me it's reminiscent of people that you know fall out with their parents and they're like, I don't need, I don't even need parents, yeah, you know. Adolescent. Yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And I know that in the book you spoke a little bit about prayer as well and how prayer isn't when you're sort of reading a prayer at a funeral, for example, it's it's not always religious. Obviously, it has religious connotations, yeah. but I guess prayer means different things for different people well, meditation is a form of prayer i mean you know I'm, I'm a meditator but it is you know prayer is a form of meditation yeah i mean i specifically talk about how i don't know how clear this is i hope it is clear like i was at a funeral it's happened to me a couple of times actually um and sometimes it's you know i use the example which was happens to be a, a, the tragic situation of someone who lost a child but i was at someone's parents funeral as well the other day and the words of a Hebrew prayer, if you translate them to English, I find as alienating as I find quite a lot of prayer when it's just about praising God. Mm. That's that's what I find alienating, just telling God that they're incredible, essentially. <laughs> but but the sound, the sonic sound of the Hebrew prayer, not which I know very well, by the way, I know the Kaddish, which is the prayer for the dead very well, I don't think it has anything to do with, at some level, with the English meaning. I think it's a song of pain. Mm. And I think you relate to that above meaning or at the signs of meaning, however you want to put it. I mean, weirdly, one the only good argument, it's not really an argument, but the only good argument to use, I can't think of another word, for the existence of God, I don't say this in the book, and maybe I should, but maybe there's enough about him in the book anyway. It's about Frank Skinner, who's in the book quite a lot, because mm. he's my friend who is deeply Catholic and deeply believing. Um, and But he told me once that when he um, takes communion uh, and the wafer go goes in his mouth, he sometimes just feels the presence of God. And what I think is that is a good existential reason to believe in God. I don't think you can argue the existence of God. You just can't. There's no logical, reasoned argument for the existence of God. But to say I feel it is also unarguable. Mm. Right? And so I think that's okay, is what I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a funny one, um, Pratt. It's a shame that we kind of can't take more of that from Christianity as well, because I feel like with certain other religions... You know, for example, what's written in the Bible, there's a lot of what's written in the Bible that is just brilliant for everyday advice, you know, ways that, yeah. we, you know, we can take what's in the Bible and we can use it in a more pragmatic way. But people don't tend to do that as much in, in other religions like Christianity. Yeah. Well, 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 again, you know, I said earlier on that the book is not meant to be a, you know, overview of religion and atheism or whatever. But obviously there are some people who, who who want it to be what it's not. So a few people have said to me, what about the terrible things that religion's done? And what I think is, well, that is a book about the um, corruption and power of organised religion, which obviously is a massive book and probably written by other people or whatever. And that's not what this is about. Mm. My book is about why I think God is a mirage that is desperately needed by human beings, and I feel the need for that mirage too. That's why I'm an atheist. It's a it's kind of a personal psychological essay, obviously with some greater social, you know, re relevance. But you know, uh, I, I ob it's obvious that organised religion has done all sorts of terrible things. Um, mm. What you've just said is interesting though, because organised religion, like so many things, takes stuff from the Bible or whatever. And the Bible, you know, it has some mental stuff in it. And it, as you say, it has some stuff in it that is actually pretty good. And this is another thing I say in the book is like 
this is why I'm not a humanist, because humanists say we need to get rid of all religion and, and start a society totally based on humans and, and humans interacting. And I, what I think is, right, so that means we would lose thou shalt not kill as an idea. And they're like, <laughs> why bother? Because like, I don't believe God inscribed that on a tablet, but I think it's still a good idea. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Well, the fact yeah. that it comes from a religious point is doesn't matter if it's mm. a good idea. Is what I think. Yeah, I guess the Bible as well is it's very interpret. I mean, I know that most people that are fundamentally Christian don't believe that it's interpretive, but personally, I I think that what's written in the Bible, even the stuff that's as you say a bit mental, could be interpreted more as like a metaphor, and then yeah. the the lesson behind it isn't that mental. There was a documentary actually a while back that um looked at it took specific Bible stories and would kind of work out what it could actually mean historically. It was more of a history documentary, really, if I'm honest. But, um, for example, the parting of the, the sea, the Red... Is it parting of the Red Sea? Yeah, not, Red not Sea. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but, yeah, they and then they sort of worked out it could actually have been a part, parting of, like, the cornfields or something, and right. it was like a certain type of gust of wind had done it. It was it was really interesting because it actually showed that there are different ways of interpreting the Bible. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably that's true. Uh, I mean, I actually wrote a play uh, which is called God's Dice, which uh, it's it's kind of a comedy, but it's based on. I'm also obsessed with quantum physics, and quantum physics uh, implies that um, if something can happen. It is happening somewhere mm. in the infinite universe. And so I worked out in that. I didn't really work it out. I had help. But in that play, an equation is worked out for water turning into wine. Because theoretically, if a lot of completely very, very, very unlikely things happened involving lightning and all sorts of things, uh, water could be turned into wine. It, it, if it's true that in an infinite universe, anything that can happen will happen, then theoretically, water has turned into wine. Right. Now, I don't know about the parting of the Red Sea. It's possible. <laughs> it's actually possible. Probably in a tsunami-like situation, it is. But mm. none of this, for me, I should make it clear, is is not. I'm not, as we speak, going back on my atheism. Yeah, now you've mentioned yeah, it. I'm not actually converting. Yeah. Sophie hasn't yeah. converted me. Sounds uh, like I'm, I'm trying I'm, to convert you, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, don't, I know you're not. Uh, but but i am interested in the i'm interested in the in in how where these stories lead to what they tell us about humans like and the magic and mysticism and also i'm interested in how that urge that that god desire urge is reproducing all sorts of other things mm. i actually think it's even reproduced in science you see that's why i think i talk about this in quantum physics books tend to be very mysterious and tend to suggest that they've cracked the, the meaning of life and whatever in a way that feels quite religious to me. And at the end of the book, I talk about the cue for the queen felt very, very like her being worshipped like a god. Mm. And I think there's so many ways in which humanity is hardwired to to find reverence and magic and, and worship. Buddha, I should have definitely included this in the book and I only thought about it afterwards, but I was in Singapore a little while ago and I went to the Buddhist temple in, in Singapore, which is a very beautiful place. And I didn't. I don't know that much about Buddhism, but I know that the Buddha is one of the rare kind of religious icons mm. who absolutely made it clear that he was not a god. Mm. He made it straightforwardly said, "I'm not a god, and you should not worship me as a god." If you're in the Buddhist temple in Singapore, that's not at all clear. <laughs> all flaws <laughs> of absolute worship at the centre of it are the Buddha's teeth. Um, wow. Supposedly, wow. Like, like you know, like you have you know splinters of the of the cross in in various churches or whatever. Mm. It's a relic. Uh, and it's in this massive case with gold all around it and whatever, and you're only allowed to see it, so all that stuff. And so what you think is right, so even when the head of this religion says, do not worship me as a god, people will, because mm -hmm. they want they want to feel that something is supernaturally above us. I guess moving slightly on, you, you touch on conspiracy theory, and I guess there's a, um, obviously that's quite rife at the moment in the world. And, and how that, you know, you need some kind of, it's like a, almost like a religion to those people yeah. in, in some ways. And um, yeah, I mean, what what are your kind of, I guess, what are your views on conspiracy as a thing? Like, it does seem like we're living in a, a time of conspiracy. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, in the book, I talk about how uh, conspiracy theory services the same need as religion, which is that somehow or other life will make sense. Uh, that there are secret things that only you have access to. Uh, 
that um you know if if you can find where the evil is that you it can be sorted out by uh your particular community it's very tribal i think um people want especially men it seems to me they want to feel they've got access to secret information which is quite a religious idea i think um i years ago um said in stand-up that conspiracy theory is how idiots get to feel like intellectuals mm. and i haven't really changed my mind about that uh, <laughs> even though over that period of time conspiracy theory has become much much more uh prevalent and people who i think are not idiots um have started to propound online quite a lot of conspiratorial ideas i was watching um a tv show called silo the other day i don't know if you've seen it it's on apple tv heard of it yeah it's pretty good uh it's basically the matrix um it's in the matrix keanu reeves is living in the world and he thinks there's something not quite right about it and then takes a pill and discovers we're all secretly being controlled by aliens and blah 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 in silo they're living underground and they're not allowed to go out because it's all really dangerous outside. And then one woman starts to realise that's all lies. and They're being blah, blah, blah. And so many films and movies promote this idea that the world is not as it seems and we're being controlled and blah, blah, blah. And that's a good story, right? It's a good story because it allows for individuals to, to have the truth revealed and to then sort of burst through this sort of oppression of what we're told and all that stuff. My worry is that when people start to do that in real life, online or whatever, then they they can get, get to some very bad places. I mean, I've said the other thing I have said, and this is not my line. It was a, a stand-up I once saw whose name I tragically can't remember. But an American stand-up once began his set by saying, I blame the Jews. It's easier that way. Or it's quicker that way. I blame the Jews. It's quicker that way. And And... I mean, it is amazing how most conspiracy theories end up with it's it was the Jews. The Jews are responsible. Recently, I tried to check this out with them. Um, flat Earth. Mm. So flat Earth, you might think, well, that's just nutters, right? Mm. And there can't be any sort of deeper thing. But actually, I looked at a flat Earth site in order to test this theory. And if you go dig far enough. They believe, not, I don't know if this is all flat earthers, I apologise if there are any flat earthers <laughs> you don't think this, but the flat earth site I went to believed that in the middle of this whatever century when people started realising that the earth was round, that this was apparently a conspiracy because the church believed, obviously, that, you know, the universe went round the earth and that we were at the centre of the universe and the flat earth was part of that. And the Jews were trying to destabilise that. They were trying to destabilise the church with the myth that the earth was round and that we go around the sun, that we're not at the centre of the universe. Wow. It's an interesting thing, actually, all that, in that I think religion and I think the God desire and I think that mm. it's all about this idea that somehow we are more important than we are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that the individual is more important than they are. Like, that's what people always want to believe. And I, I sort of think we're not that important <laughs> in general that's uh, i love life and i love people but i think we're not that important um at the end of the god desire i come i talk a lot about animals and about how you know i basically think that um which i just think we are animals we're just slightly cleverer than animals which is put in this weird position where we believe all sorts of specialness about ourselves mm. not least that we're allowed to hunt and kill animals uh, and there's no problem with that, even though we are just exactly the same as them. Yeah. And so much of what we do, including conspiracy theory, I think, is a way of of trying to confirm that specialness, mm. I think. It's so, so true. It's something that I personally am fascinated by, the sort of weird entitlement of humans yeah. and why. Yeah. But uh, even I've questioned at times sort of why, um, why, why us? Why have we got language and... Um, the ability to communicate with each other and this sort of consciousness that seems slightly higher than wild animals mm. and and i guess as humans we are sort of storytelling creatures we like to yeah. we like to attach meaning to something the idea that we're yes. just a, an accident and we're just atoms floating around on it you know we're ants on a planet is terrifying yeah. and it can be quite destabilizing for people i think and we do tend to sort of grip onto anything that might give us a little bit of purpose and a little bit of meaning whether that be yeah. religion Although, or cult i know i definitely 
I, that's absolutely right. Um, but I think your question about why us, I mean, there's lots of reasons for it, but also I, I as time goes on, I, I think there isn't that. I mean, what I mean is we're not that different. Animals do have language. I think they do have meaning and I think they do have love and empathy. Mm. I have a little theory, which I don't think I've seen anywhere else. Uh, and I do talk about this a little bit in the book that something that is changing and it's quite a good thing as a result of the internet and very few things are good as a result of the internet um podcasts accepted obviously uh but is that um there are so many films now of animals doing human-like things mm. that gradually 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 it will filter to, into humans understanding that animals have love have empathy have kind of have basically language i think not, I don't know about story, but there's a type of story telling that I think animals might have. Mm. I mean, you know, it's obvious with things like octopuses and whatever, but I think you can you definitely see it in primates. Mm. I, I think, and mm. I'm I'm on and on about it. I think you can see it in cats. I think like because I'm very obsessed with cats, mm. and if you spend a lot of time with cats, what you realise is every cat has an individual personality. Mm, now, if every cat has an individual personality. What does that say about our notion of human exceptionalism? Mm. That, that's, I think, the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Oh, you're speaking my language now. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we can talk about that that a bit more in a bit. But um, let's moving moving slightly on to um, just the idea that humans are kind of desperate. Okay, that's not a very big banging sound. That is in your house, isn't it? No. no? Can't hear anything I here. think are you in London, David? Yeah, yeah, I'm in Kentish Town, but oh, when I take you? the headphones off, I can't hear anything. Weird. Oh, on, weird. There's a oh, it's gone now, yeah. but was yeah. a banging. Yeah. I heard it a minute ago through your your mic, okay. but I think so it's me, is it? Well, we're we're in the um arse end of nowhere, so it's unlikely. Where are you? <laughs> Where are you in France? We're in Seaford. In, oh, in Sussex. Sussex, yeah. Oh right. The little sleepy town of Seaford. Oh lovely. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. We're not in the... Okay, yes, it's definitely me. <laughs> but don't worry, because we can't really we, hear yeah, it sorry, much. Okay. No, we can sorry, what were you about to say, Sophie? Um, so, moving slightly on to... So, we talked a little bit about sort of cults and how people can kind of get sucked into cults. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea of celebrity as well, because that's another really fascinating topic in terms of like why humans need to attach some kind of importance to other people and almost like a hierarchical way... Mm. And it, it, I think it is kind of related to religion. I mean, you might disagree, but yeah. I think it is no, kind of related to religion in some ways as well. No, I completely agree. I mean, I think that the way that we uh, create deities out of celebrities, and, and some of them are very clearly deified. Mm. Elvis, for example, the <laughs> idea that he's not dead, you know, uh, or Michael Jackson, the other he's not dead. People don't believe these people die. Mm. You'll find online an enormous amount of conspiracy theory ideas about how very, very famous people who have died are not dead. And that's because they are gods. Yeah. Essentially. Therefore, immortality is something that people associate with them. Um, and I, I think you do see this a lot. You, it's also, it comes back to what you were saying about storytelling, which is that we're telling a story to ourselves all the time about various things. And the story is never quite the truth, whatever the truth is. Because I I believe the truth to be, unfortunately, what you said earlier about atoms. That's the truth. It's kind of chaotic, kind of storyless thing going on. Uh, and it does have a pattern, but it's mathematical and kind of obscure and whatever. So one example is like the Philip Schofield thing is a story was told about what this morning was. Right. Now, I don't think anyone believed that. So, like, who believes that? Who believes that? You know, the smiley, bland, ev everything's nice all the time. There's no darkness here ever. Who believes that about humanity? But it was a story that that program has always told. Mm. And and then it turns out not to be true. I'm not getting into the morality, by the way. Of, of I do think that yeah. there's very complex stuff to the way that people... Well, actually, one thing I will go, which is that the reaction to it, Forgetting for a moment about how much you're angry or not about what he did, the, the reaction to it, I think, is less about people really being worried about safeguarding and all the rest of it, mm -hmm. even though that is obviously an issue, but about how the story has been broken. 
And yeah. people need those stories to make them feel, I don't know what exactly. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I don't, I don't think, I, I, I personally, I think I do need those stories. I mean, an example, to be honest, is when he came out as gay, um, uh, who believed that he had been faithful to his wife? Because apart from anything, if you've been married for 27 years and you've got two kids and then you leave your partner, mm. oh, like I think probably you've tested it out whether or not the life you're going to is one you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, don't quite you think? Test, yeah. Isn't it? It's, it's quite a thing to do on the basis of a hunch. <laughs> yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. Which is what he was saying when he was saying, <laughs> I haven't done anything. I'm really gay. I haven't done anything. I'm probably it. gay. I don't know. Yeah, probably gay. I, I haven't, obviously, obviously, I haven't yeah. slept and to test out that theory because I've been faithful yeah. to my wife, obviously. Mm. You can't think, like, what the fuck? Who believed that? Yeah. But, I would have thought no one, but now we have to believe that everyone's really upset yeah. that they bought that lie. Yeah, so, it, I mean, yeah, we won't go into it too much, but I... No, I don't of... want to go into it too much because it's so complicated and the people it get is, yeah. angry about it, but, but I'm just talking about the storytelling. Exactly. Yeah, the storytelling that, that we sort of have to believe in. Yeah, because obviously, really, if people's shock was at the situation itself, there wouldn't be pictures of this young man plastered all over the internet because people would be, you know, he would be the victim and, you know, yeah. this, that and the other. But instead, it's it's more around the narrative, isn't it? And, yes. And what... It's more about the sense that we've been let down. Mm. A story that we all bought into mm. has not been, has turned out not to be real. What I think is, did we buy into that story or is there a weird double thing where everyone knew the story was not real, but we sort of needed it to be real enough that when it was broken, we're still annoyed. Mm, yeah. That's quite a complicated sentence, but do you see what I mean? Totally. Yeah. It's, um, and we also, as humans, I think we love to, in some ways, when we have that narrative rocked, we love to tear, tear people down. Mm. Like how, in an extreme way, it's like, it, people just totally forget themselves don't they and they well, I guess rush also to people we see is in a privileged position as well yeah of course mm. yeah of course a lot of it is, is just about that but anyway I mean I, I think that you know I, I did did a show a while back about fame um, I'm actually doing it again I'm, I did I've done three stand-up one-man shows over the last sort of 10 years one was about fame one was about my family and one was about trolls and I'm sort of recording them all in the autumn, which is quite daunting because I have to re rewrite them and rethink about them anyway for Sky. But the first one was about fame. And in terms of what you were saying earlier, it was sort of, it was really just a lot of funny stories about that have happened to me as a result of being in this weird position. But it was also about the weirdness of being um, always presented with a version of yourself that is not you. Mm. That's what fame is. Um, mm. uh, it, someone once said, uh, who wrote Fear of Flying? Fear of Flying. I should know this. The woman who wrote Fear of Flying, whose name suddenly goes because I'm getting old, uh, said that fame means millions of people will get you wrong. And, yeah. and that's true. The, that's storytelling again, that yeah, there will be a story of you that fits the fact that people who don't know you do know you. And then at that point, you become aware that it's not correct. And... What's been slightly odd for me is that because I'm obsessed with truth and authenticity, I've spent quite a lot of my time muddying any story about me. So, so for example, when I first appeared back in the 90s, there was a lot of stuff about me being a lad. And I always thought, well, not really. I don't drink. I'm monogamous. Like, what is this? What is this? So I just talk about football. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, but because people want there to be a straightforward story where you talk about football, therefore... Or, and then it, it became important to me to sort of undercut that. And I remember writing and seeing a review of one of my early novels saying, why does David Leal feel this need to constantly muddy who he is? I think like, I'm not muddying who I am. I'm just trying to express who I am with complexity. Yeah. So, but I think that's when you talk about celebrity, a lot of celebrities don't want to do that. They want to have a brand mm -hmm. that is quite straightforward. And I'll be honest with you, I think that is successful. I think I think what I want to do is less successful, but I feel a need to do it. I feel a need to do it because I'm obsessed with some kind of truth, but I think it doesn't necessarily help you have mass appeal if, if that's what you want. Mm, I don't know. It worked for Buddha. 
Well, it didn't work for Buddha <laughs> because it, because Buddha is dead and people are worshiping him as a yeah. god. Yeah, exactly. That's not what he wanted. But he, he tried the whole like, oh, tried. don't yeah, worship he de- me. He definitely tried. Yeah, it's yeah, like no, you he, going, he I, I don't drink. I don't I'm not know, allowed. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know that he's thought of as a celebrity exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe I don't know. Well, so, same thing, isn't it? You know, God's celebrities. Yeah. It's what we do the same thing in our minds with both. I, I think it would be interesting. Well, he was, he was a prince, actually. He, I, mean, I don't know enough about it, so I apologise to any Buddhist listening. Actually, um, Lee Mack is a Buddhist. Did you know that? Oh, is he? I oh, didn't know that. Yeah, Lee Mack does a Buddhist podcast, and when he read The God Desire, he said, listen to my Buddhist podcast. <laughs> uh, so I listened to a couple of episodes. It was mainly him being funny, of course. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think he was a prince, not Lee, uh, the Buddha, Yeah. and then renounced it all in order mm. to you know, find whatever he found through poverty and stuff. So that feels quite like a celebrity thing to do. That feels <laughs> like, quite like a Channel 5 programme. It does. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the artist formerly known as uh, Buddha. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or Prince Charles, not Prince, no, no, Prince William it will be now. Yeah. To spend a week living in poverty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Going on, you were talking about, um, obviously, your show Trials and, I know you did a lot of work on social media, did your documentary, which was fascinating. And I wondered actually if you've changed how you use social media much since going through that process, because I know you did a lot of experiments and you came off Twitter, for example, for a couple of weeks. And uh... Well, I've come off it since then for longer periods of time. Mm. Yeah, no, I don't think of it in exactly the same way anymore. Um, And that'd be interesting when I do the Trolls show, which was the Trolls show is very much based on a quite combative thing, which is that, when you get trolls, you should treat them like hecklers. Uh, and as a comedian, you're responsible to try and make them funny. And I, I used to do that all the time. And then I and I've stopped doing that. Not completely. Every so often, I, I I dip my toe in that water. But most of the time, I just don't look at responses anymore uh, because I do think social media, particularly Twitter, um, is just you know uh, it's a space of anger. Mm. Uh, I did. I said this in the social media program that I think the problem with social media is that you think it's a marketplace of ideas and that's probably what I thought it was when it first appeared. It's not, it's a marketplace of identity. Mm-hmm. And once it becomes a marketplace of identity, people think, how do I promote my identity? I have to do it in an oppositional way because there aren't that many ways to say, for example, I'm an anti-vaxxer mm-hmm. except by saying I hate vaccines. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That's yeah. how you create an identity is by saying, I hate the thing that is not my identity. And so now when I occasionally go on it, it just seems to be people wanting to confirm their identity by being angry with the people who are their perceived opposite. Mm. And that's just a waste of fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I don't spend that, I don't spend anything like the time on it I used to. And I and I tend mostly to just tweet things, jokes. I just tweeted a joke about this morning, which has gone quite well. Uh, <laughs> or, or, or promotional stuff. Um and that's it, really. I don't. I very occasionally, because of my role, which has come upon me to some extent as being a person who a spokesperson, an activist for anti-Semitism mm-hmm. against anti-Semitism, I feel the need to say something about Roger Waters or someone who's mm-hmm. being, in my opinion, is crossing some kind of line. There, it happened recently with Joe Rogan, actually. Um, but even that, I don't do as much as I used to because I just think Twitter is not a useful space to to talk about these complex things. Yeah, you can't um, you can't argue with these people. It's it's not no, you can't be, argue, and people want to argue, and you know whatever happens, whatever you say, people will find ways of you know take taking what you say. I mean, this comes down to the truth thing, the authenticity thing. They will take what you say and make it mean something else. Mm. Uh, because they're not really interested in a conversation they're interested in their thing being promoted like at the expense of yours or whatever Mm. I I mean I still see you know funny stuff on there witty stuff on there insightful stuff on there from people that I follow and that's great but any kind of once it becomes an interaction that's when I, I think like there's no point because unless it's like a really sweet interaction so I post a lot of cat pictures yeah I post a lot of cat pictures partly because I love cats and I'm always fascinated by cats I have four cats Mm -hmm. but also I guess I also post them because if I post a picture of a cat with some I know I don't just post a picture I normally have a thought about a cat then people will respond in a you know nice way there's no other way of putting it I know that sounds very bland 
But even though there'll still be some trolls somehow, he's probably in a cap. But most people are just telling me about their caps. Mm. Uh, and that's all quite nice. And it and it creates an idea of a social media network that is a kind of phantom, <laughs> which yeah. is that somewhere back in the midst of time, it could have just been like this. But now it's not. It's mainly, it is just people shouting and being angry. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I've got quite a positive experience with Twitter because I literally... Well, I'm an artist and I only post my art and the only people I get on there are nice people saying nice things about my art and they're just lovely. And and to be honest, I don't really go down the timeline, so I don't see people shouting about their miserable stuff. So it's nice. That's interesting, Sophie, because I think that, like, you know, the the reason I feel this is obviously I have talked about controversial subjects and principally anti-Semitism, but other subjects as well. and you should be able to say things like that without it just becoming a huge row. Mm-hmm. But I think, in a way, what you're what you're expressing there is right, which is like it, it's it's a place where hopefully you could just put up some pictures of art, mm-hmm. and people would just be okay, interesting, nice, whatever, appreciative about it. But I think the minute you strayed, like say you did a picture, right, of something with a political message in it, yeah. right? I don't know. I don't know what your art is, so I may be wrong. Maybe you do do that, but well, funnily enough, my next collection. So I'm I'm a wildlife, right. mostly a wildlife artist and a conservationist, environmentalist. So my next collection is actually slightly more that sort of realm and so right. I've been for months just having like an existential crisis like oh my god what be- will people hate it they're not going to get it they're going to you know, hate me as a result <laughs> and uh, so yeah it kind of is relevant what you're what you're saying right actually. well you, I mean yeah if you are straying into any kind of controversial waters you will get some people saying so I mean just to go back to the animals thing is I've talked online about how and posted pictures of like I think it was a donkey mm. seeing its owner after many years. It's the the one who brought it up and obviously, obviously expressing love for this person. And I I wrote about that about how it was moving, but how it was also about how I feel that human exceptionalism is 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 a myth, is mm. a story. Yeah, and you you can see this animal with with what we consider to be human qualities, empathy, love, whatever. Now that, although a few people are nice about it, leads to lots of people getting really angry mm. and saying, you're just imagining it. You're just anthropomorphizing this animal. It just thinks that it's got food on it on its way. They they don't like it. They yeah. they find that. So what I'm saying is that you don't have to go very far. That feels to me not a very controversial thing to <laughs> no, say. Yeah, for yeah, people yeah. to get angry. Yeah, totally. Oh, I've had people like po- I've posted a painting of a shark, and people are like, "Sharks kill humans," <laughs> but it, right. it was a it was a whale <laughs> shark. Rarely. It was a whale shark. They don't eat. You know, they they don't they couldn't even eat humans if they wanted to. It was just so ridiculous. But yeah, it's it's funny um, how. Yeah, but sharks do, do kill humans, which some do. That's not a reason not to post a picture of a shark. <laughs> <laughs> no. Humans kill humans quite a lot. Humans of time, kill though. humans. You know. <laughs> yeah. Lions, yeah, also, exactly. we never posted a picture of a lion ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, well, you never see a shark walk out of the water and kill someone in their own home, do you? So, <laughs> well, though, what's interesting about about that as well is that I think it's now becoming possible, and social media has done this as well, to um, say anything that that feels like just a sort of thing in itself. But what I mean is, like, people have to attach mm. some kind of aggressive meaning to things. So you posting a picture of a shark is seen for some reason as a celebration <laughs> of a shark and its killing, killing. <laughs> rather than just it's a picture of a shark. Yeah, you know, yeah. Some, some people think, no, no, clearly it means this. And you think, like, well, <laughs> no, it obviously doesn't. But you want it to be that because you want to be angry. Mm, yeah, and that, yeah, exactly. that's what's happening. Yeah. One thing that really interest me, interested me, because I watched your show about... Um, social media and when you went into the scanner to scan your brain uh, and read sort of negative tweets about yeah. yourself and it ha- and yeah. flared up all of the stress responses in your yeah. brain and I've always wondered if if they did that similar test on people while they were tweeting something aggressive if it would flare up similar things in the brain almost like a an addictive adrenaline rush of getting involved in it because i've i've certainly seen things on twitter before that have like angered me once or twice where my heart rate started going yeah. and it's like a physiological response yeah. and i can see how it's a fine line between um 
seeing that as like a bad thing and a stress response or seeing it as like an excitement because they're really the two yeah. sides of the same coin, aren't they? Yeah, I really agree with that. And actually that's mainly what I try and avoid <laughs> uh, because um, I think it is bad for your mental health and you can feel it. Definitely. You can, you know, if you, if I was to decide for no good reason that I'm going to check all my responses, you know, 10% of them or something would be incredibly hateful. And you can feel that you can feel that. And it's a weird thing. Interesting. That, that some people claim I mean, it's a bit like what i was saying about the machismo of atheists some people claim i think for it just it's not a problem and whatever it's just people on twitter who cares mm. is what they think and i kind of think like okay but do you not have that physiological response then when someone just writes something unbelievably hateful yeah. uh sort of death threat level blah 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 you know thing about you mm. then yeah what is it that you're not feeling uh, and I don't know if I believe it. I don't know mm. if I believe it. Right. Uh, but you can probably be inured to it. I guess if you if you want to, which I don't, you could probably end up like, oh, I've seen this so often it doesn't mm. affect me. I wonder. I've got a theory about this, though. I'd love to know your thoughts on this. I personally, just my own experience and just from other, like friends and stuff like that, when someone says something nasty about you that's so outlandish that it, you can't attach any... Uh, you can't connect with that in any way. It's like almost hilarious. It does, just goes over my head. But if someone were to say something quite personal that deep down I believe about myself or I've rejected within myself in some way, it really stings. So if someone were to say, I don't know, you're, oh, well, you're only posting online pictures of your artwork to get attention, that would probably hurt because then I'd start to think, oh, my God, like, am I? Because I do want attention for my artwork because that's how I survive. You know, and you start yeah. to question your own identity Whereas if someone were to say something completely out there that I know to be not true in any way, I don't think it would bother me, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think it's different, slightly different responses. Well, that's mm. a really interesting point. So I think sometimes when you read something about you, yourself that is really not true, there's a, one type of response, which is a sort of unfairness thing. Mm. Like you feel frustrated and angry that it's so unfair. But then, yeah, every so often you read something that makes you think like, oh, God, they're sort of digging away at some anxiety or or whatever i mm. recently there's probably people listening there that all will uh love this but never mind because it, it was interesting is that i uh, a guy wrote a piece about anti-semitism in football in the guardian mm. and i've done lots of work on that specific subject um and i retweeted it and i made a joke about how he hadn't mentioned any of the work that, that i'd done about it and i said but hurt though i am about that i still think this is a good piece mm. And then it got taken up by a lot of the people who hate, hate me as like, this is David Baddiel being like so narcissistic that he has mm. to talk about himself and blah, blah, blah. And and one person said, this is a good example of someone who just thinks, you know, that the stuff they've done is is most important and the stuff that uh, that this guy's done is not as important, but he, he's pretending that it is. And it was all this sort of thing. And I thought, it's interesting that because he might be right, that person. He might be right about why I needed to say that. But then I thought was, something would be impossible, which is a shame, which is like I might have been able to respond to that and say, you know what, there probably is an element of my own flawed vulnerability about how I was sort of vaguely ignored in this piece that, that needed me to say that. Mm. But isn't it okay mm. to display my flawed vulnerability? Isn't that yeah. okay? Instead of being slammed and slammed and slammed for it. That's what I think is yeah. that your point about, oh, do I do feel that? Or maybe you do, but that's mm. not bad. Because yeah. probably probably everyone at some level has got attention-seeking reasons for wanting to create X, Y, or Z. Mm. That doesn't mean that your art is shit. It doesn't, right? It just means that there's complex motivations for it. Your art will have a quality. I haven't seen your art, but it will have a quality. <laughs> it's very good. Separate from that. I'm going to add that to my website. Thank you. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> but it will. Anyone who creates anything, it will. There'll be some motivations will be shallow and some won't be. Mm. And and that that's another example of the complexity that Twitter shuts down because Twitter is about winning and losing. Mm. And someone wants to say, you're a loser because you've said this. Like, well, maybe the uh, talking about how it's a loss or a flaw or whatever is a good thing. But now it feels just like impossible to talk about because you've made it a triumph of whatever, your side, that I've said this. Mm. Yeah, it's very polarising. I mean, you've had... 
copious amounts of social media stuff, haven't you, over the years? Yeah. So you're probably sat, sat there listening. You, you sort of moved away from it for a bit, didn't you? You went off Twitter for a bit. I did. I had six months away from it, um, which was glorious. Why did you come back? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I probably need to sell a book or something, um, <laughs> which is, you know, I'm so narcissistic. But, um, on the way, it's off yeah, on the way. Isn't yeah. It? Uh, yeah, you get drawn back in, don't you? Because, you know, particularly if you have got a large following um it does become part of as freelance creative it is part of your job um yeah. we're all little small businesses aren't we and we do have to market ourselves but yeah it was certainly an um an interesting period of reflection and and like you i i use it very much differently than i did before um I'm yeah so I, mean, way, I went off it after my Jews don't count film went out um because i knew there'd be a lot of shouting about that and people mm. were telling me, oh you've been trending for weeks or whatever and and then it became clear to me that I could, I could, if I wanted to go back on because the shouting had stopped like it does. Mm. And I didn't want to at that point, which was mm. really not like it was the first time I came off. The first time I came off, I was fairly desperate to get on yeah. when I, the social media field. But the second time I was, I thought I'll go off for a week. And then I was off for like a month and a half because I just thought, Oh God, it really is nicer not to be, uh, have that slight uh, uh, you probably don't have this Sophie but Giles will know what I mean a sort of underlying anxiety <laughs> yeah about that, that someone has decided to you know try and make you the the you know villain of the week or yeah, villain of the week on yeah it's the targeting I think is interesting the targeting when you're you become someone's main focus for a while mm. yeah um yeah yeah just keep going until they get your attention or mm. yeah i mean there's a documentary to be made which i'm not going to do because i've done a documentary about social media but something i didn't really go into in that documentary which is the coordination and um you know processing and sort of administration of how that happens because you know i will say every so often i won't anymore because i don't engage but i used to say well, this is obviously a bot mm. and i kind of not exactly sure what i mean by that because i kind of think like but it's still a person but it's a person yeah. but it might be a person that's like one of 27 sock puppet accounts yeah, that yeah. Are all trying to have a go at you so they're sort of a bot but i don't really know how that works to be honest i i've read something about this i can't remember where though i'm thinking might have been in a John Ronson book. Well, I can't remember. Um, we can cut that out if it wasn't. But anyway, it's um, it was doing a little experiment on on some hate that someone was getting, and they worked out that pretty much all of the accounts were linked to one person. One person, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. and and I was just going back to what you were saying earlier, Giles, about you know how it can hurt to have someone make you the focus of their hatred. From an outsider's perspective, for me, looking in on your situation, for example, or your situation, David, it's it feels almost laughable because it's like, well, isn't that sad that someone's whole day is is devoted to sort of creating hate or or spreading hate or being nasty to you like that? That feels kind of pathetic to me. But when you're yeah. the target of it, I can imagine it feels yeah. bloody awful. Yeah, I mean, I think on a larger framework, just sort of move away from like the individual. Is I was reading this morning about how um, incidents on aeroplanes of disruption and antisocial behaviour have got much, much worse since 2013. Now, I think it's wrong to ascribe every single thing that happens in society to social media. Mm. But I do think that like when I read about stuff like that, I do think what social media fosters is a sense that if you feel angry, you can just express it mm. and it doesn't matter. Mm. Because in the old days, you never really saw anyone being that angry all the fucking time. But now, you literally just have to turn on your computer and there's so much anger. Mm. And that, I think, does bleed out it to, to it real life, whatever real life is. And so when you read about any space in which there's somehow more anger, more disruption, more people being violent or whatever than they used to be. I mean, it's an, in sorry, it's an interesting thing, actually, and which is the specific thing apparently, is that on planes, and obviously this is related to another technological phenomenon, but where people want to vape. Mm. Right, want to yeah, vape, yeah. Right, and, uh, and they're refusing when stewards say you're not allowed to. They get just get angry and they fight or swear <laughs> or whatever. And I think, obviously, that's related to addiction to vaping, but it's related to yeah. something else, which is just this sense of massive entitlement mm. that social media has bred, of like, no, I want to be able to do what I want 
I want to be able to say what I want. And uh, if it's anger that I want to express, I'm going to just express it. Mm. Even though the other person, like a poor steward on a on a plane, is going to be really upset by it. Mm. The same way that people don't think when they're being horrible that there's another person on the end of that. Yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> It's it's ironic, isn't it, that social media has kind of connected us all to people all over yeah. the world, but at the same time we seem to have lost a sense of community because yes. there comes a point where you forget that people are people because exactly. you just see them as these faceless online identities. And yeah. I guess that's it would seem that's bled out into society where you go out into the world and you forget that the air stewardess is a human with, you know, well, just doing their job. Yeah, a friend of mine who's um in, is a... Uh, musical theatre performer said that uh, has always had a bit of criticism online but then started to see it at stage door so people mm. would come to the shows yeah. specifically yeah. To, to, to troll them in real person in real life yeah no i definitely think that's happening i definitely think that the normalization of trolling basically the normalization of anger and rage and like the lack of restraint that you mm. might think oh this is perhaps something i need to keep to myself that there's definitely spills out into real life and in terms of what you were saying about community mm. i think who would know this would happen but yes when you hear about it in 2009 you think well that will create this worldwide community but instead what it's created is a whole load of fragmented communities yeah. who are all at war with each other yeah that's that's what it's created yeah it's crazy isn't it it's a shame i mean i don't know i i feel like i have made some friends on using social media but oh, yeah so have I yeah so have I that's true Giles is one of them yeah well we, yeah. we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't no, no, so no, like, yeah. 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 and true. we shouldn't be too negative and there's yeah. definitely people people <laughs> I've never met who I feel I know because of it who are very nice um mm. and there is niceness and actually that social media documentary ends on an up note where my dad was ill and that's standing my dad no longer with us but he was ill and I posted about that and you just get loads and loads of love and I think that's definitely true about human beings. That human beings will express love and are often lovely. The problem is, I think, that power devolves, we know this, to the negative. And so the people who are lovely, they they haven't got a thing to say unless it's a catalyst like, oh, that man's father is ill, so I'll say something. Mm. Whereas the angry people have constantly got things to say. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 that is true, actually. It's a good point. Well, David, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. One, last, one last question. Can you please tell us the names of your four cats? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so they're all part of the same family. So the mum, I mean, she had many other kittens, but we gave them all away. So the mum is called Pip. Uh, her two immediate sons are called Ron and Tiger. And then my dad, when he died, had one of them as well called Zelda. Uh, oh, and Zelda. so Zelda has now appeared, but unlike an episode of Long Lost Family, they don't <laughs> like each other. <laughs> oh, no. they, they spend most of their time uh, <laughs> shouting at each other, and it's like Twitter to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, a lot yeah. of anger, and a lot of rage, and a lot of territorialness. But I think they're gradually getting to, 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 to coexist. So yeah, okay. we, we've only got the one cat, but um, and like you say, it, such personalities different mm. cats have got. It's amazing, and he's yeah. he's hilarious. I mean, it's every day he makes me laugh. Yeah, no, they're, they're inc cats are incredible, I think. Um, I, I've been trying for a while and failing to do a TV show. I, you know, I do these TV shows that I guess are quite intellectual and whatever, but I really want to do a show called David Bill Catman, where oh. I just go and see cats. Yeah. Uh, people write to me and say, oh, my cat does this amazing thing, and I go and see them, and that's the whole show. And yeah. I would love to do that. Well, please I've come and see my cat, because yeah, he's, he's, he's very funny. Mitz is brilliant, isn't yeah. he? He sits <laughs> like a mat little old man. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you some pictures, though, because he actually sits okay. up. He sits upright like a like a man in a seat. Yeah, in a, like, yeah, he's hilarious. Send me that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is he? Are you mostly just interested in domestic cats, or are you into big cats as well? Well, I definitely like big cats as well. I, I definitely am fascinated by big cats. In fact, I'm really fascinated by the fact that, as far as I know, the cat is the only animal that has a small version and a big version that are almost exactly the same. If you see what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. There are smaller monkeys and bigger monkeys or whatever, but they're different yeah. generally. Yeah. Like a like a, a macaque is quite different from a gorilla mm. or whatever. But a domestic cat is a small lion, mm. as far as I can make out. And I think that's brilliant as well. There's something brilliant that cats. I also think it's sorry, I will down to talk about cats forever. Yeah. But that's cool. they are also the only animal that have colonized us. 
mm. right? Which is an amazing thing. Like dogs, we decided many years ago to breed for work and you know be sheep dogs and guard dogs and whatever, and that led to the relationship between dog cats worked out. Mm. If we hang around these monkeys then they will give us food yeah. and and we will make ourselves kind of like quite nice for them. Yeah. Like we'll, we'll sort of generally be a bit affectionate towards them. And that's an incredible thing. Yeah. I think. And then going full circle, we ended up worshipping them at some points as society. So yes, I know. The Taking God desire. Well, I often think cats would be an absolutely okay thing to mm. worship. Thank you for listening to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.